So tonight, tonight is the beginning of the official beginning of the 100-day practice period, otherwise known as the 100-day retreat. Some of you may be aware of that and some not. Can you hear me in the back? Great. I consider this uh, to a degree to be, uh, in some way for this group, uh, the, the second turning, and I'll explain. In, in terms of the, in using the word turning, I refer to the first sutra or teaching that the Buddha offered some 2,600 years ago was called the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. It was called the Dhamma Chaka Sutta. Dhamma, Dharma, meaning the wheel, or I mean, the, yeah, the, the truth, the wheel, um, chakra, the wheel, Dharma, chakra. That was the first turning of the wheel of the Dharma. The fact is, this is not meant to be a talk on Buddhism, but we would, not hit, we would not be here this evening had it not been for that first turning of the wheel 2,600 years ago. And in that first turning of the wheel, the Buddha, recently having become a Buddha, which simply means awake, awake, uh, expressing, radiating all the potentiality of a human being, both clarity of wisdom and boundless compassion and the capacity to meet uh, conditions of life, stressful conditions of life, with a kind of serenity and equanimity, a well-being that, uh, that doesn't depend on the circumstances of our life that are so ever-changing. So this is what the Buddha means, awake and uh, And soon after the Buddha's awakening, he started this discourse by saying, life is really stressful, (laughs) as if you didn't know. (laughs) And what's true, what was true at the time of the Buddha is also true today. Life has within it many kinds of things, many kinds of stresses, that which is difficult to bear. The word that he used was the word dukkha which is often translated as suffering, but it has much more nuanced and subtle meaning, that which is difficult to bear, stress, unreliability, unsatisfactoriness, all the different elements that, every, that, that everyone's life is faced with from time to time. And as sometimes called the great physician, he was great at, uh, at diagnostics, And in this case, he diagnosed that we all are stressed out. So imagine yourself 2,600 years ago. You hear this talk, it it relates completely to how it is now. Life's stressful. But he wasn't just a diagnostician. He um, He was a healer. And he often, he always offered a, um, a remedy or a prescription for how to deal with this. And in the case of stress, he said to open to it, to understand it, to look at it. See, this, this is how it is. Not to spend your whole life trying to avoid it, 
running from it, not facing the inevitable stresses that present themselves. And if you have fulfilled, if you've taken the prescription, not just gone home and thought about the first noble truth, thought endlessly about it and just thought of it as a philosophical view of life, but if you actually took the medicine, followed the prescription, open to it, let it really touch your heart, you could then say, the, the signal would be, you could say, yes, this has been understood, this has been realized. You can actually feel, there's a felt sense of that moment that you actually let in some pain, let in some stress, where you're not turning away from it. There's almost a, a palpable sense that you've come, come, into, um, come into harmony with, you've come into alignment with the truth. This is stressful when it's stressful. So he didn't stop there with that diagnosis, prescription, and potential result. He went on to say that there is a cause for the continued experience of stress, not so much the, just the, the, the basic aches and pains that come with being born, but the, especially the mental stress, the mental suffering that has not as much to do with what it is that's happening, but has everything to do with how we relate to or react to what's happening. This is, what the, he, this is his second noble truth, that the cause of your stress and continued stress is this deeply conditioned pattern, this habitual conditioned tendency of mind, and I'd use the word here conditioned to remind us that this tendency of mind can also be deconditioned. That's why we're here tonight, hopefully. But this deep condition is to want things, continually want things to be different than the way they are. Continually have a, a mental reaction of grasping at what is not here, averse, uh, 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 reacting in aversion to what is here, the way he talked about in the first noble truth, the kind of suffering we experience, essentially said, wanting what you don't have and not wanting what you do have. Any of you relate to that? That it is this very activity of mind that expresses itself, as, as he described it, in the force in the mind called uh, tanha, thirst or craving. Both craving for uh, pleasure, something more pleasurable than what's occurring right now. You may already have that feeling, just listening. <laughs> craving, craving for... Um, existence or for for further existence trying to to make certain your your the continuity of your existence it's often translated as the craving for becoming the constant state of mind that says i have to be more than i am right now in order to be happy and well what we know what gets lost in in that endless pursuit Sure enough, the quote I'm looking for, I can't find. Our mind becomes entranced in an endless search 
for greatness, the, the loop of good, of better, of best. We get lost in the comparing and evaluating mind, comparing to some impossible ideal and overlooking our genuine humanness, the beauty of what we are already. What is intrinsic in us gets lost in this constant pursuit of good, better, best. And it keeps us in a, on a wheel. That wheel is called, that thirsty wheel is called samsara, this endless wandering. Constantly leaving in our wake a feeling of not enough, of dissatisfaction. And that dissatisfaction spawning more and more feeling that something's wrong with me, something's wrong with this situation, something's wrong with life. And we feel queasy, feel really queasy, anxious. Because then, of course, as we talk about a lot here, our sense of well-being becomes tethered to uh, the future. And one of the things that we forget in our tethering our sense of well-being to the future is that it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as tomorrow. That's just an idea that appears right now. There's only today. There's only this unfolding present. Only this place where our bodies can remind us that, that life is. So he didn't stop there with this craving for becoming. It was the the reverse side, the aversive side, is craving to get rid of and craving for non-existence, craving to shut it all out. And we've become masters at attempting to shut life out, hiding ourselves away in fear and dullness and and intoxication and uh, just zoned out in so many different ways. All of this the function of the mind that is in the state of thirst and craving. And unfortunately, it hasn't made anyone truly happy. It's only made us more miserable. So the Buddha's prescription for this cause of suffering, what do you do when you see that something is causing you suffering? What is the natural thing to do with a cause of suffering? It's not rocket science, really. (laughs) He suggested that you abandon the cause of suffering, that you stop, stop, feeding that wanting mind, that mind that's in a constant state of becoming. You may not, it may keep rolling along. You may keep noticing, oh, I should be different than the way I am. I need this to be happy. I need it, I need it, I need it. We have a lot of practice at that. A lot more practice than renunciation and contentment and uh, fullness and wholeness. A lot more practice than that. But we can actually use, this is the way that I like to think of it, we can put all of that craving to good use. And we can, and even in the course of these next hundred days, we can make that craving that all of us, because we live in that consumer culture, and the consumer culture is constantly reminding us that uh, you need to keep greedy in order for this economy to keep going. That is the truth of the way we are trained again and again. So there's lots of opportunities to see the mind that's toppling forward into that imagined future in some form of craving. 
I don't mean the natural cravings of needing to feed your body with hunger or house yourself with, with, with shelter to clothe yourself, to do all the basic needs. That kind of craving is wholesome and uh, onward leading, keeps us healthy and protected, strong. It's the neurotic kind of, um, n- neurotic kind of craving that can never satisfy us, that only leaves us uh, just parched. As one teacher put it, uh, all that samsara, this whole loop offers us to drink is a, a cup of salt water that just keeps us even thirstier. So to abandon this, we can put this to good use. And every time over the next hundred days, at least this is one of my practices, every time you notice your mind in a state of craving, in a state of wanting, this is what I do. There's two things I do. I let it be the cause of coming back to my body. That's the first thing. I want to feel First of all, what is it like to be in a state of craving? I want to feel the impact of what I'm practicing every day. And what I've been practicing, mostly unconsciously, I want to know what the reverberation is. Unless I actually know the reverberation of that, of that state of craving, if that's being conditioned over and over, unless I really feel that that is an unsustainable, painful uh, cause of pain, I won't stop, I won't let go. I will not let go. So I want to feel that feeling in my body. And that that does a few different things. If I take my attention away from the object of my desire, it could be a person, it could be a place, it could be a thing, it could be an experience, it could be anything that your mind says, I need it, I want it, I've got to have it. And that without it, I won't be happy. Do any of you have any of those on on your... list or in your mind. I, I, I just always like to know whether this is just me or not. <laughs> so if you take your attention off of the, the object of desire, off of the story and the fantasy and the picture, if you can notice it, feel the impact of that in your body. Sense the contraction, the feeling of thirst or hunger, the burning, the, the bubbling, whatever that feeling is. If you do that, you will almost immediately become anchored to here. You will come out of the trance. You will come out of the imagination. You'll feel what it's like to be present. You'll also feel the pain of that, as I said before. And yet, at the same time, you are likely to notice, if you're not feeding the story of it, you're likely to notice that feeling reveal its intrinsic nature. That feeling will reveal its intrinsic nature as constantly in a state of dynamic change. You will experience that feeling of desire arise and pass away right on the spot. Now, if that method of actually feeling your body and feeling the wave of desire roll through your consciousness seems like one that you can't really connect with, at least stop for a moment. Ask the question, is anything missing now? 
ask this, the question, is there anything missing now? You might as well do it right now as well. Is anything missing now? So all these little methods uh, are ways of abandoning the cause of suffering. The cause of suffering is to remain in that state of, of hope and fear, craving. The Buddha didn't stop there. He moved on to, uh, I think, the very hopeful... Well, of course, the third part of the second truth, the prescription, one has to be able to feel that experience. This has been abandoned. There's, there has been... A non-inter there has been for this time a non-interfering noticing of craving, of becoming. I've noticed this. I haven't fed it, and in noticing it, not feeding it, I can say I have abandoned it. I haven't fed it. That's what that means to abandon it. It doesn't mean to not to go out and get what you want. You may at some point still want to do that. Hopefully, that it's not. It's not um, driven by the same compulsion, though. Hang on. Okay. You have to be able to say, this has been abandoned. So then the third truth. He didn't stop there. He said, and I think this is maybe the most important part of our uh, 100 days together if you so choose to be part of the 100-day practice period. The Buddha said on that evening when he turned the wheel of Dharma, there is um, an end to suffering. There is an end to stress. There, there is, the, um, there is the, the possibility in each of us, literally, moment to moment. He also often said, to be seen here and now by the wise didn't say after a thousand lifetimes. To be seen here and now, there is an end to suffering. And he said, he gave a prescription for that too. This must be realized. This must be realized. So we can take some point where we have been caught in the cause of suffering. We felt its, its movement, its cessation. We can... And we feel it pass away. And we feel, after we've asked that question, is there anything missing now? And it's likely, I think, I'll challenge you over the next hundred days, I have yet to find a person who, when they stopped and asked the question, is anything missing, if they actually felt that moment, like the Buddha did, he was called the Tathagata, and the word in the Tathagata is, uh, uh, I think it's Tathaga, which means suchness. When we, when we touch the immediacy of being, of being right here, we ask ourselves, is anything missing? If we don't, if we just stay with that suchness, we don't consult our memory. We don't look to the past to define what's, whether anything's missing. We just take our, the picture on present evidence, how it is right now. We, again, this is a challenge. Check it out. Don't believe me. 
you may discover that nothing's missing. And you may know in that, that especially after, if, the, if you've been caught in a big desire trance, you may realize this is the end of suffering, at least for this moment. We can have these little mini cessations, as they're called, cessation. The cessation of the three poisons that the, that the Buddha described as the three root causes of suffering. Greed, the grasping mind, hatred, the flip side of greed, and delusion, which is this whole drama of me that gets generated um, by greed and hatred. This, all, this whole story of me, it just takes off when we're caught in greed and hatred and then we start living in, in ignorance, in confusion and overlook the, the basic reality that everything is changing. Anything that is changing that you cling to, grab at, that is fleeting, creates suffering or rope burn as I like to say. And that uh, as we see that everything is changing, that our mind is changing, our body is changing, what, whatever, we often take that to be very much me and mine and self, and, and we fall into the misperception that, that's, that, it's, um, that it's very personal, when in fact it's just a changing condition. Everything is in a state of flux, state of flow, and it's not so personal. Everything. I don't know how you settle with that one, but I don't want to talk too much about that tonight. So finally, this hopeful teaching that there is an end to suffering, it didn't stop there. It said there is a way, there is a way that, can, that each person can come to this realization, can come to the end of suffering, can feel for themselves that there's nothing missing, can find a sense of well-being that doesn't depend on conditions, that can experience, as the, as the Buddha described it, the sure heart's release, a sense of truly being home, being free, having one's heart open, responsive, radiant, and be able to live wisely in this world, in this very life, and uh, come out of the, the tangle of confusion and fear. And he gave a prescription for this uh, path that is possible, this awakening. He said, this is the noble eightfold path. This is, there are eight limbs on this path, eight Practices eight um, ways that you can practice. And I'm saying this tonight because I'm hoping that you use this as a template for the next hundred days to reflect on the f- first starts with wise understanding. And the wise understanding mostly includes the Four Noble Truths. To reflect day in and day out about the fact that there's stress. This is, the Tibetans call this, that samsara is defective. (laughs) And we need to reflect on this and not be in a constant state of idealization about our life. It's messy. Any of you notice that? 
Practice will allow us to creatively respond to this mess, but it's messy. If you leave right now, you'll miss one of my favorite passages. I don't think you're going to want to miss this. People who, I recognize many faces, people of you who, people who just sat with me on the retreat that ended Sunday just heard this, but indulge me. This is a story of recognizing the messiness of samsara, of this life of endless uh, searching, and how we can creatively respond to it, live in this life but not excessively idealize it. This is entitled One Tough Lama. It's an interview with Pema Jones, a 13-year-old Tibetan Lama, which means teacher, in the spring issue of Cyber Sangha. He's also known as Rinpoche, Pema Jones, known as Rinpoche, which means precious one. He was born in India to a Tibetan mother and an American father. He lived in a Tibetan Buddhist monastery until he was seven. He now lives in Wyoming, one of the youngest Buddhist teachers in America. Interviewer's name was Chris Helm. It must be hard enough to be a 13-year-old boy in America, not to mention a Tibetan Lama. How do your friends and family treat your connection with the Dharma? It's kind of weird. I have two older brothers. They tease me about it. They call me Shrimpoche. <laughs> the kids at school don't know I'm a llama. I would never tell them. Why not? I get dissed enough as it is just being Asian. They call me names like Nip and Gook. It's not like when I was growing up in India. Everyone here in Wyoming is white. I consider it a good day when some goof in a pickup truck doesn't try to run me over. How do you deal with people trying to hurt you? It's pretty safe around here, but we Asians need to stick together. Some of my best friends in our gang are Chinese. It's strange to have Chinese friends when my family's been treated so badly by the Chinese, but this is America. I gotta live here with my own karma. Some skinhead doesn't care, care whether I'm a Tibetan or Chinese. He just wants to stomp my head. You're in a gang? It's just for protection. If a guy threatens one of us, there's nothing we can do on our own, but by getting a bunch of us together, we can defend ourselves. We don't have guns, we don't do drugs or rob people. Can we talk about something else? <laughs> sure. Do you like your students? Yeah, they're all right. They're kind of funny. It's like they say they come for the teachings, but when they get into the interview room, they talk about other stuff. What other stuff? They mainly talk about the opposite sex. Men talk about problems with their wives. Women talk about their husbands, boyfriends. I don't get it. It's like I have little enough time as it is with school and Little League and my chores, and they want me to be a shrink or something. And I'm only 13. I mean, I've got girlfriends and all. But what do I know about relationships? So what do you tell them? I called my dad about it, and he gave me a stack of business cards from one of his friends, a psychologist. I just hand my students one of the cards when they start talking about relationships. I put my name on the back of the card, and whenever my dad's friend gets a new client, he takes me, my brothers, and sister to Dairy Queen. 
it's cool. Buddhism is no big deal. It's like being a doctor. There's suffering, you diagnose it, give someone a prescription, and hope they go to the drugstore. No one in America wants to go to the store, though. They all want to be pharmacists and sit around discussing different types of medicine. What's with that? Take some medicine for the next hundred days and come back next week. Just wondering if you're listening. I mean, don't get me wrong, Buddhism is choice. So you're fully qualified to teach. Sure, I mostly teach Tonglen, giving and receiving. It's what I think works best at times when people are trying to kill you or so many changes are happening at once, which seems to be the case in this country. You're basically a giant filter, like on an air conditioner. You suck in the bad air, you breathe out the pure air. I see myself like an air conditioning repair dude. I teach people how to filter and cool things down. So if you can cool things down, why do you need to be in a gang? It's a samsara and nirvana thing. If some guy disses me, I can tell myself that he really doesn't exist separate from me. You know, he's dissing himself. That works fine, but what happens when he stops talking and starts beating on me? You need to be able to take care of yourself so you don't get killed. We live in samsara, and spacing out about nirvana doesn't help anyone. Don't you see any contradictions in that? The Dalai Lama, for example, constantly teaches nonviolence, despite having been terribly oppressed all his life. Ha, huh. oh yeah, right. The Dalai Lama is an awesome old dude and a killer teacher, but he's got like a dozen bodyguards around him when he's traveling. <laughs> what do you think would happen if some budhead pulls his, a gun on his holiness? Do you think those dozen bodyguards will practice nonviolence or bust some karate move on him? <laughs> no way, man. A bodyguard sees this dweeb with a gun and he's going to pop a cap in his ass. <laughs> so life, life is messy. <laughs> and we have, but, we, and, but we find our composure in it. We find a way of, of both, in this case, keeping a sense of humor and creatively responding. So wise understanding, life is messy, it's stressful, the cause of it is more grasping, aversion, state of becoming, there's an end to it and there's a path. And the path is to reflect on this. And then out of that reflection, it is encouraged that you look at the way that you think. If you think with a mind that is filled with greed, with hatred, and with ignorance, suffering will follow. If you think with a mind that is uh, marked by non-greed, which is renunciation, generosity, non-hatred, filled with loving-kindness, non-delusion, that deep sense of interconnection with all things and all beings rather than all about me, if you think in these ways, one way causes suffering, the other way brings about a sense of connection and well-being. Out of that, you arouse as much as you can the most 
wholesome, which wholesome means not imbued with non-greed, non-hatred, non-ignorance, the most wholesome intentions that you can possibly have. What I like to incline my mind toward every day, and this is another invitation for something you can do over the course of these hundred days, is every day clarify your intention. This is where you're practicing wise thought or wise intention, the second part of the Eightfold Path, and incline toward the rest of the Eightfold Path. Incline toward non-harming, which is really another way of saying incline toward being of benefit to those who have to live with you every day, all beings everywhere. Incline your mind. This is the Buddha's radical teaching on our actions. Our actions, the result of our actions, uh, is determined by the intention, by the motivation behind them. So every day, if you can, find some little space of time. It can be one of your practice periods where you consciously incline your mind toward the wholesome. The Buddha described in the training of our attention to cultivate what he called the four wise efforts, to, to cultivate the wholesome, to maintain the wholesome, to abandon the unwholesome, and to keep the unwholesome from arising. To basically do practice that which leads to a sense of happiness and well-being. And he was very specific about what leads to happiness and well-being. Wise speech. This hundred days is a beautiful opportunity to practice wise speech. Wise speech, truthful, useful. Truthful is not always useful. Kind for someone's benefit, not harshly and not frivolously. I was thinking today, because part of the, the next piece of the Noble Eightfold Path, besides wise speech, is wise livelihood. And essentially, it's not dealing in intoxicants, not dealing in weapons, and not dealing in deception. And I was thinking about the karma, the fruits, the fruits of the karma of our action. It's a very central reflection of the Buddha that we are encouraged to do every day is that our actions have results. Everything that we think, everything that we say, everything that way that we act has a result. That actions have results. And in wise, in wise livelihood, not dealing in deception or lies... For your, in your career. Just think if our politicians stop telling lies. Just think about that. Where they actually practice this precept every day. I, it just blew my mind thinking about it. Maybe I'm the only person interested in politics here. Well, that's a very cynical view. He, Larry says they wouldn't get uh, reelected. Maybe you're right. <laughs> I'm just I'm 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 not overly idealistic, but I am considering if you it, it, I th- reflect in this way 
because we can just see the unwholesome, the unskillful actions and the reverberations of those in our life, in our world, in our discourse. Don't want to get too far off on that one now. So wise livelihood, wise speech, and then wise action. Everyone here, if you haven't made a list and put it on your refrigerator of the fine five ethical guidelines, five trainings, do it today, do it tonight, do it at the beginning of this 100 days. Don't steal. Don't kill. Reverence for life. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't cause harm with your sexuality. Make that super conscious. Why speech again? Part of both the its own noble truth, its own uh, limb of the Eightfold Path, and as well one of the five ethical guidelines, wise speech, and, uh, and last, not um, taking intoxicants that cloud the heart and mind, that lead to heedlessness. Did you want to say something? Oh, drink. Yeah, not to forget uh, intoxication. Again, refrain from killing, refrain from taking that which is not offered, refrain from, from telling untruths and committing unwise speech, uh, refraining from causing harm with our sexuality, the positive being use our sexuality for the purpose of joining and caring for the benefit, and then not taking intoxicants that lead to heedlessness and carelessness. And then finally, central. I know I may be keeping you, oops, keeping you a little longer than I expected. That is my um, samkara, or it's one of my conditioning. A little, don't know how to stay bound in time, so forgive me. But the hopefully your wise understanding will lead to wise intention because we the wise understanding reminds us that we don't exist independently apart from each other and it reminds us what we do to ourselves we do to others what we do to others we do to ourselves we incline toward wholesome actions and what gives us the stability strength and the um, that fortifies us and the energy to stay as conscious as one has to be in order to come to the end of suffering, to transform our lives, to turn our lives toward the Dharma. We need mind training. We need not only just to casually uh, bring attention to our actions of body, speech, and mind, but we need to put our tush on the cush. I sound like a politician right now. You need to sit down keep quiet, let your mind and body come into the same location several times a day if you can. If you can't do four long practice periods, do ten quickies or at least four quickies since we put on the, on the, the new Facebook page four practice periods a day. The quickies... My latest uh, thought is the best quickie is to sit quietly, find your body, find your breath, 
bring attention to what's the state of your body. Even right now, what is the state of your body? Move into your heart center. What's the state of your heart? What is your mood? What is your emotion? And then move into the realm of thoughts. What is the state of my thinking right now? If there are any left at that moment. Four times a day, what is the state of my body? What is the state of my heart? What is the state of my mind? Meanwhile, you're, you're connecting with the movement of your breath. And then if you can have a sustained period, an extended period, do what you would normally do in your practice. I would say every day, if you can, to do some period, whether it's informal or formal, of loving-kindness practice, Start to infuse your mind with goodwill, wishing yourself well first. Always start with yourself. The Buddha said you could scan the world in all directions, not find anyone more deserving of loving kindness than you. You. Not everybody else. You. Your individual existence. You deserve it. And we often leave ourselves out. So some loving kindness toward ourselves, loving kindness toward our nearest and dearest, loving kindness toward the difficult people in our life, the people we don't notice, all beings everywhere, knowing that we don't live apart from each other. So the, some loving kindness, some quickies, some pre, keeping the precepts. Um, something in practice that you know that you're doing that is beginning to go against the stream of some of your bad habits. This is really an attempt to start to turn, our, turn ourselves away from being just so damn compulsive and addictive and to incline toward having a, a, a heart that's easy and free, that isn't so dependent on the, the next fix, the next uh, habitual... Uh, compulsion. So that may mean for you turning off the television a little sooner. It may mean sitting down for 10 minutes before you would normally turn on the TV or before you open the refrigerator. Do, your, do one of your quickies. This is a very creative process. The path is something that we create. It's not something we follow to make it. It won't look like anybody else's. So this 100 days, it's an opportunity for you to to shape your heart and mind. The Buddha said, if this was not possible to do this, I wouldn't ask you to do it. So consider that. Hopefully you get some inspiration from these teachings and from the reverberations from your own practice. But if, if just doing it on your own doesn't help, make the commitment to come on Tuesdays to get the support of being with others. Have fun with it. Have lots of fun. Try to, don't turn it into a grim duty. Alan Watts says the problem with spirituality is all about grim duties. We do things because it's good for you, a kind of self-punishment. The purpose of meditation is, the potential of meditation is to actually enjoy it. To groove, as he says, to dig the present. To groove with the eternal now. And to realize that the very purpose of life is realized in this very moment, here and now. Because this is, we are all going to die, and the time of our death is really uncertain. We're all going to die. We're, 
And we want to be able to say, as, we, as part of the fruit of our karma, I lived well, I worked well, I practiced well, I realized, I realized the fruit. It doesn't mean I became, a great per- I became a great person that everybody admired. Forget about that already. That's unwholesome intention. Don't try to be such a big shot. Just, as Sumedho says, just be an earthworm who knows only two words. Let go, let go, let go. And just, just love in the simple ways. First of all, yourself. So I wanted to end tonight by reading a poem by... Could you say it really loudly? Armado Nervo. It's actually, oh, there it is. Armado Nervo. It's called At Peace. And we are going to, as a special duet, <laughs> we are going to read it in both English and Spanish. Because it's an a Argentine poet, correct? Mexican, Mexican poet. I'll first read the English, and Andrea will read the Spanish. Very close to my sunset, I bless you, life, because you never never gave me false hope, nor unjust work, nor undeserved suffering. And now, as I reach the end of my worn road, I see that truly I was the architect of my destiny that if I was able to extract the honey or the bitterness from things, it was only because it was I who put the honey and bitterness in them, into them. Whenever I planted rose bushes, I always harvested roses. It is true after my flourishing, winter will follow. But you didn't promise me that May was eternal. Without a doubt, there were long, painful nights, but you never promised me only good ones. However, I experienced many that were blessedly peaceful. I loved, I was loved, the sun caressed my face. Life, you owe me nothing. Life, we are at peace. So may you be at peace. And here's... And this poet also lost his um, mother and father at a very young age and his wife after very few years of marriage. Um, so in Spanish, it's muy cerca de mi ocaso, yo te bendigo vida, porque nunca me diste ni esperanza fallida, ni trabajos injustos, ni pena enmerecida. Porque veo al final de mi rudo camino que yo fui el arquitecto de mi propio destino. Que si extraje la miel o la hiel de las cosas, fue porque en ellas puse hiel o mieles saborosas. Cuando planté rosales, coseché siempre rosas. Cierto, a mis lozanías va a seguir el invierno, mas tú no me dijiste que mayo fuese eterno. Hallé sin duda largas noches de mis penas, mas, no me produ- mas tú no me prometiste solo noches buenas. Y en cambio, tuve algunas santamente serenas. Amé. Fue amado. El sol ac- acarició mi faz. 
Vida, no me debes nada. Vida, estamos en paz. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. A thousand thank yous. So let's just sit for a moment. And after we ring the gong, we do have a few practical announcements about the 100-day retreat. But in the meantime, let's just sit quietly. And just surrounding ourselves with loving kindness. Ourselves and the beings we share this time with, this precious time. And we consider that time together like this is hopefully the cause of some blessings, some goodness, some merit, some benefit arises from our being together and we freely and lovingly share that with all beings, with each other and all beings everywhere. And we wish with all our hearts that all beings can find some happiness and peace in their lives and the causes of happiness increasing every day. That all beings can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. That all beings can recognize that suchness, that sacred happiness that is beyond sorrow here and now. And a deep wish, maybe the deepest wish, that all beings can grow in serenity and equanimity, able to meet the joys and the sorrows with less reactivity, less grasping and aversion. And a special prayer and a blessing the sharing of our, the benefits of our practice with all the beings touched by the uh, massacre that took place over the weekend in Tucson. May all beings be touched by compassion, loving kindness, and may this hundred days and our practice every day of our life be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings, inclining our hearts toward altruism and goodwill. May all beings be free. Anyway, so nice to be back with you again this week. Uh, and thank you so much for uh, supporting the group in the last three weeks when I wasn't here. And uh, it's just very sweet. Thank you for your practice. Do you, I'll say something about this. So uh, for those of you who may not know this, there is now a Facebook presence for Mission Dharma. So there's a Facebook page and also a a dedicated page for the 100-day practice period. It's called the Mission Dharma 100-Day Retreat, right? 
and it is possible and I would highly recommend it as one of your practices of generosity during this next hundred days to uh, post messages on this uh, Facebook page about what you're doing, any creative thing that you're doing. I'm reminded right now that one thing that was recommended to me this evening by Andrea was that one of our four daily practice periods, uh, I thought it was a brilliant idea, and maybe we can all do it, that all of us, everyone who's agreeing to do this for the next hundred days, that all of us practice some form of, of silence or recollection at 12 noon. Everyone practicing at 12 noon, some whatever it is that you do. You can do one of your checking in with the body, the moods, the mind, or just a period of silence, but just remembering at the noon hour every day that there are other people who are practicing. So I thought that was a sweet idea. So please present your own ideas on that Facebook page. And please enjoy your practice and frame and create a very clear uh, clear form that you'd like to follow and um, and we'll check in about it as we go along. So thank you. And as usual, our, uh, we have to remember that there is a $150 room rental. Any help with the room rental is appreciated. Anything that's offered by me or anyone that takes this seat is offered in the spirit of generosity and the invitation is for you in terms of your training of generosity and non-greed to offer some uh, support um, in the form of what we call Teacher Donna. So room rental, Teacher Donna, much appreciation allows us to keep rolling along and thank you in advance. No, I'm sorry, I put you on the spot by saying it was cynical. I, I just came out of my mouth, and it, it was, it's like a big discussion, but like politicians, to me, represent the karma of the people that elect them. You know what I mean? It's not like they're just the aberration. No doubt about and, it. They and don't that, exist. That was, what, that was where I was. I agree 100%, and yeah. it would be, but they also influence the people who Absolutely. elect them. And if they were to practice non, non-line, hello, ever, Javier, good to see you. Did you ever see you in a while. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.